Welcome to the Prison Mindfulness Podcast, presented by the Prison Mindfulness Institute. In this podcast, we'll be talking with experts in the fields of prison mindfulness and prison dharma, discussing their transformative work in prisons and jails. Hey, welcome to the Prison Mindfulness Institute Summit. And I'm Vita Pires, the Executive Director of Prison Mindfulness Institute. I'm happy to be here with Robina Corton, who is going to talk to us today about her experience working in prisons. So Robina has been ordained as a Buddhist nun in the late 1970s at a monastery in the Kathmandu Valley. Venerable Robina has worked full-time for her teachers, Lama Tupton Yeshe and Lama Zopa Rinpoche, and their worldwide network of Buddhist activities, the foundation for the preservation of the Mahayana tradition. Over the years, she has served as the editorial director of Wisdom Publications, the editor of Mandala Magazine, executive director of the Liberation Prison Project. She's a touring teacher of Buddhism. Her life includes her work with prisoners, has been featured in the documentary film Chasing Buddha, and the other one is called Key to Freedom. And she also has quite a following on TikTok, I just discovered. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> like 54,000 followers or something. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. So, okay. And you're giving some like little zappy wake-up moments for yeah, people. Just, yeah, just decided like, you know, one minute, two minute little videos. Kind of, we, yeah. we like short little things. It's good. It's good for the mind, I think. Oh, it was great. Uh, it's yeah. Listen to a bunch of them. I was like, wow, these are fabulous. Okay. You're the only person I follow now on TikTok. So, <laughs> okay. So, you've been around for a long time and you've been de- you do it working probably with prisoners for a long time. What got you started on this? this path? Well, yeah, it's, exactly. I was based in California. I came to America and I'm from Australia. I came to America in 94. And I was based at some point, based about 94, 95, when I was editing the magazine of our organization, Mandela. And I got a letter in 96, I think, a letter from um, this young Mexican-American guy who'd been in gangs. He told me he'd been in gangs since he was 11 in Los Angeles, in juvenile prison since he was 12, and he was now 18. And he was in this top security prison in California, just kind of well-known, called Pelican Bays, with, you know, three life sentences. I mean, I, he hadn't killed anybody. It's just the sentencing was pretty severe for gangsters, you know. And so there he was in his cell 23 hours a day and bored, but this intelligent boy, you know, with his good heart, these Mexicans with their good hearts. And he'd sat in, and for some reason, amazingly, there was a good librarian at these, in the security housing unit library. And so the, uh, Arturo, his name, he, um, he found a book of Lamieshi and he's very moved by the talk of compassion and that triggered his interest in Buddhism. So he wrote and that's when we started. I mean, he wrote a letter, I sent a book and I wrote back and within a year, word of mouth, you know, 40, 40 prisoners. And then this, we called it the Liberation Prison Project, it just grew from there. And it was a very specific thing because, I mean, the prisons in America are so many and the country is so vast you know, and uh, so we, we we really focused on one particular program, which is still going. I gave it up 10, running it 10, 12 years ago. And it's receiving letters, giving them a mentor and then sending books, you know, because I mean, most of the people working class, no family, no money, no resources, bored to tears, depressed. So to have something and those we're interested would write and then we'd make them have a friend, you know, and that was like a miracle to have one friend, you know. So that's how it started, and that's what it still does. And it's now in other countries as well, different ways. In Italy, they do visiting a lot. In Australia, it's going. That's it. So I saw your um, film on Chasing Buddha, and you went into prisons in Kentucky. That's a uh, the heart of America there. Exactly. That was 
yeah, one inmate there wrote. He, I don't know, he found our address and then I went to visit. And, and since then, in particular, there's one fellow there on death row. I just had an email from him this morning. Mitchell, he's on death row there. He's been the man I've known most the last 25 years there, since 97, I think we first, I first visited him. He, as he says, he's getting he's ready for that electric jolt. And he, I think he met the Dharma through some Korean Buddhists in the mid-90s. He's been there since the 80s. And then we connected and he's got a really devoted practice. And, and just and the thing for me is just so inspiring. I mean, not trying to not trying to make them special human beings. They're human like the rest of us. But you know, then the Dharma they, they listen to is the same Dharma we all listen to, but their condition is so kind of fraught and their backs are against the wall, you know. And so they what I admire are those who do practice is they really sincerely practice. They don't have much choice, you know. So I find that very moving. And I mean, just, yeah, just now I visited Mitchell a few times and a couple of other people there. I, and yes, we had a group in the in the movie. Yeah, it was my, my nephew made that film. That was back 20 oh. years ago. Yeah. Great. Yes. Um, you mentioned choice. And so how do you feel that the Dharma offers them another chance for to make a different choice, maybe? No, I think that's the thing. But I think it's really, if we, we really get the essence of Buddha's teachings, we all know Buddha's deal is, that, you know, he has found from his own experience that if you work on your mind, if you lessen your neuroses and your anger and your depression and your jealousy, then you're going to be happier. I mean, that's the bottom line, really, what Buddha's saying is almost so simple, it's embarrassing. And that's and so here we are in this world with seeming to have choice. But if you think about it, you know, being brutal, we basically, if you've got a lousy job or a lousy relationship, you basically have two choices if you want to do something. Either you leave or you say, okay, I'm not going to leave. There's something worthwhile here, but I'm going to change my mind about it. I'm going to re I'm going to reinterpret this and see if there's something good in it. But we can do neither, you know. So we might as well be in prison. But my friends in prison, our friends in prison, they they only have one choice: go mad or work on their minds. And that's what I find so admirable. You know, I've not got so many amazing examples of just ordinary human beings, just like you and me. When you're really up against the wall, you know, you either go nuts or you 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 change your mind. You reconfigure the way you see the world. I mean, that's the essence of what Buddha gives us, you know, you really get it down to earth. So um, when we go in on like weekly classes, you know, I go in, now we're going in on Zoom to teach well, classes on Zoom. Yes. And, you know, in different jails and prisons, actually some of them are in the South and, you know, different because now that it's opened up to Zoom and tablets and all this stuff. Yes. It's like a whole different can of, you know, something or another's. And... Yes. It, I, the people are very, um, you know, they want something. They obviously want something. They get a hint that there's something there for them, and they want to do the practice. But then, a lot of times, what happens is they, they, when they're practicing, they go into this kind of dissociative state where they're like off in dreamland, and you know. And then you ring the, oh, okay, now I'm back here. I'm back here in the prison. But I've kind of like, you know, oh, it was so mellow just because I was over there on a beach or something like that. So there's some kind of like habituation to go and get it's totally understandable to get away from where that's right. pretty ugly places that's right how do you work with that with like that well, that's, i mean that, that's what i find i mean you know as, I, as you can see i'm a Tibetan buddhist tradition and i'm i'm, I'm, I'm good look for as long as she said good squeeze their brains it's kind of like meant to be our it's like joking you know but i do find for myself i mean it happens to be my style that i really find that studying the Buddha's philosophical view of the universe, not just saying, oh, yeah, things change, but really analyzing it, really drilling down, and then really also studying the Buddhist model of the mind, which is pretty amazing, coming from these genius Indians. I always remember it was the Dalai Lama who said it was these amazing Indians more than 3,000 years ago who were the ones who really began the investigation into the nature of self 
I mean, and, and so the precision and clarity of the Buddhist view when you really drill down into it of how the mind works and therefore how you can work with it, it's not, I think, not, I, I find not just giving someone a meditation technique, but enabling us to confront the way reality is, which is Buddha's deal. We're living in la-la land, thinking that things are permanent, thinking that handsome boys will make me happy, you know, blaming everybody for making me unhappy. So we really do understand, know how to work on the mind by studying it. I find that also really helpful. So that's what I find with the people I know in prison, giving them books. I mean, many of them don't even know how to read and write, but this is just their way of also educating themselves. And because they're bored to tears and have nothing, one book is so precious, it's unbelievable. So then this enables them to really read and think about the way that what Buddha said. I think that's really helpful. That really backs up your practice. And then you can confront the reality. I mean, Mitchell is in this garbage dump place, you know, in this bluestone building, boiling hot in the summer, freezing cold in the winter, waiting for his death date, you know. So he's very down to earth and he's very practical. And so also he he helps others. He's, I mean, there's this, these death row guys, like they're at 40. In the movie, they were all together, but some guys escaped and so they started getting strict and now the death row guys are all together in their red jumpsuits. So he's got 40 roommates, you know, but he's just, he just becomes this friend to everybody. He does his jogging. He gets up early for his practice. He does his study. He's now got a tablet because it makes the prisons money. You know, it's so evil, but he's happy to have a tablet. He now listen to podcasts. And so he, but he hears the teaching. I think that's important. Then yeah. you can confront, we all have to confront the reality. You know, we have to look at what real, it's not always depressing to see reality. It, it brings us down to earth. Then we've got some courage, I think. So I, I find that's really, you know, and the people I know who've, I mean, yeah, I find that's helpful. And this is why books, for me also, you could, you could visit a prison and then one, you don't come back after two months. In the, what are they going to do for two months? But you give them one book, that's the most precious friend, you know. One book can be unbelievably powerful when you have nothing else to do. So you can, and that can really energize the mind, energize your thinking, you know. I find that very helpful. That's one of the main programs in our prison project. We give books. We've given hundreds of thousands of books over the years. That's one of the main tools we use because we understand we will, I mean, because it, if you have nothing to have one book can be so precious, you know. A visitor is marvelous when you be so moved or even a letter is so marvelous. But having a book that you can work with on your own in your own cell, that's pretty special. Yeah, you know, our founder, Fleet Mall, he, you know, he founded yes. this anti prison. He found, that's what he founded, a Books Behind Bars program because all these yeah. prisoners were writing to him and saying, can you help? And so he got that's these it. Chambala to send books, Chambala that's published. It. And so we've continued that on. And you know, like you said, we've sent hundreds of, hundreds of thousands of books. Yeah, One of the very, when I first started in like 1999, I, Nick, Nick from, Rebush. yeah, he contacted me and said, we'll send you some Lama Yeshi books. And I was like, okay. okay. We were like way up on the top of this building. And, and one day all of a sudden this UPS guy comes and it was, he was so annoyed. And <laughs> he had to walk all the stairs up with all these books. And they had, to, Nick had donated like 3000 books to us. Oh my God. But I bet people love Lummi Yeshi because he's so down to earth. And, yeah. I mean, he just touches people's hearts. I've really yeah. seen that. You know? They really, really loved him. So I was kind of, sometimes people would look at the books, oh, these aren't as good as like Joseph Goldstein, you know, this kind of thing. I was like, no, no, these are really good. You know, you've got to realize these are so helpful to people. Yeah, that's right. So some, when I go into the classes, you know, I usually ask things like, you know, when you're, how are you doing and everything? And how's it going with anxiety? And uh -huh. people in here experience anxiety and 100% always raise their hands. And then I said, well, is it a big problem? Is it like a 100% yeah. of people raise their hands? So anxiety. So what, what do you say to people that are like experiencing this? Of course, it's anxious, you know, like you're unsure. Of what's it is, exactly. No, I, you know, the thing is, I think um, 
these things we all experience, we call it depression, we call it anxiety, whatever. But if we look at the Buddhist analysis, and I find us even just theoretically understanding the Buddhist analysis can at least help us understand it. That if we understand it, you know, Buddha tells us in the Four Noble Truths that attachment is the main cause of all our problems. It sounds cute because we use the word differently in our culture. But the more we... we look into what that is. It's this constant emotional hunger to always have something more. So, of course, when you're in a, a garbage dump and you're also you're the lowest in society and no one's praising you, which is very painful, then clearly attachment's not going to be getting what it wants. So that means the, the – and then what anger is, I mean, the Buddha talks about attachment and aversion. These sounds so cute to us, you know. You don't go to your therapist and say, oh, I've got some attachment. I mean, we, we, but it's almost too simple, but the Buddha's view is so profound when you, deal, you dig deep in these. So if attachment, always wanting something more – which means never satisfied with what I've got, which also means never satisfied with who I am, which is a big suffering we all have. I mean, the Dalai Lama, when he heard about low self-esteem and self-hate in our culture, yeah, that's a mental illness. I mean, it's true. And that's all a function of attachment, never getting what it wants. So, of course, if you're a volatile type person, then you're going to, when it doesn't get what it wants, this attachment, you're going to get angry and shout and yell and go crazy or it's more mild and you experience it as kind of just stress and anxiety. So really it's attachment and aversion up and down like a yo-yo, you know? And so, I mean, doesn't it's, it's, we've got to have the analysis and then you just have to do the work and have some confidence that every tiny little bit of work counts. You're moving one step forward. And part of, I mean, there are so many techniques as we very well know, but one of them is to learn, we have to learn to live with these, I call, I call them my crazy roommates, you know, the angry roommate and the anxious roommate and the worried roommate and the jealous one and the depressed one. I mean, they never end. That is constant. We know that. But we need to learn to not be afraid of them, I think, to turn to, and then I think the other thing is to learn to listen to the conceptual story that informs that feeling. I mean, we only look and we only notice what this is our tragedy in the West, I think. We only notice what's going on in here when it becomes emotional. But we, and the real skill I think we get from the Buddha and his techniques is you learn to listen to the thought processes, of the, the conceptual stories that inform those emotions before they become emotional. But I think we have to have courage to know that it's not going to go away overnight. And then if you really have that courage, you're prepared to look at it and hear it and not hide from it, not push it away and learn to change your views. I mean, this is really what being a Buddhist is. It takes courage to do this. I mean, we all want it all to go away, but it doesn't. But if we can confront it and not be afraid of it, I think that's part of the battle. And I certainly find that with anybody who's really trying to practice. And then also the other thing is to try not to buy into these negative stories so much. I mean, for some reason, we know 27 people can tell you you're not a bad person after all, you're nearly quite good, but we won't believe it. But one person even indicates something bad about you and we'll believe it will run like a magnet. So this is the irony of ego, you know, and this is the the thwarted attachment we never satisfied. So we have to kind of change that, learning to be satisfied with who we are and trying to praise ourselves. And even, my, that's why my friend's in prison, I, I mean, it's too rude to me to say it, well, why don't you see some good things about prison? That's very rude of me to say that. But the ones who are working on their minds are doing that, you know. I mean, I like to, I'll tell one story. I always tell this one. There's this woman I know. She's out of prison now. She's old, 80-something. She's living in Ireland. She was in, she was, she's not even a Buddhist. She's some hippie Jewish girl hitching in Florida with her hippie husband and hippie kids. Her name is Sunny. I think she wrote a memoir. And she uh, they got picked up by two guys and then the two guys got stopped by the police and they killed the police and blamed the hippies. So there's a, there they are on death row. I mean, it's like the most nightmare story you could ever imagine. And if you're on death row and you kill policemen, you're the worst scum of the earth, you know, in this world. So there she was 17 years in this utter hell, but she somehow had this, I can only call it emotional intelligence. She did yoga. She wasn't a Buddhist. She's still not a Buddhist. She doesn't talk about karma. She doesn't talk about these things, but she's had this ability 
to know that she had a choice to change her view of her nightmare. I mean, even her husband got executed while she was there. She went to it and his head burst into flames. I mean, there's this kind of, I mean, it's not, it's like, I mean, livable. This is this, this crazy country, you know, I'm allowed to criticize. I've got an American passport. So somehow Sunny was able to keep her sanity. She was in, in solitary for years with a Bible. She learned to know. She said, I knew I had a choice to change the way I think. And even at some point, she said, I'll never forget, you know, she said, at some point I realized I couldn't change anything, but I knew, but they couldn't take my mind from me. So I decided I'm not a prisoner. I'm a monk. I am not in a cell. I'm in a cave. I mean, that's straight from the mouth of these, you know, Lama Zabrusha talks about transforming problems. It's unbelievable. And she had this ability. So the con consequence is she didn't lose her sanity. She never stopped working on her freedom. And she finally got out, you know. But she, you, when you meet her now, I've met so many people who've come out of prison who are broken emotionally, you know, because it's such a hideous place. But you'd never know from this little old lady in a wheelchair that she's had this living hell for 17 years because she was able to work with it. Able to, and that means nothing cosmic. That means changing the way she interpreted it, seeing the good in it and learning to use it and knowing she didn't have to go crazy. That's what's incredible. And I find that so admirable. I mean, unbelievable, you know. Such an example. Wow. That's a fabulous. That's really inspiring. She's written a memoir. I think they're going to make a movie out of her eventually. I forget oh, what a memoir okay. was. What's the name? Remember. You know? Her name is Sunny Jacobs. You read about her. She's Sunny amazing. Jacobs. Okay. Sunny Jacobs, yeah. So um, so it sounds like you, you know, the people that you worked with have been able to develop a path quality. I think when this world of mindfulness, mindfulness, yeah. and what's actually missing, what I find is when it's just going in with mindfulness, it's yeah. the, the path quality is kind of lost. It's like a technique. You learn the technique, but there's something like, I was kind of like, because I notice a lot of resistance sometimes in prisoners. Oh, okay. I don't want to do that. You know, whatever. I don't want to do the mind. But I, then I thought, what was it about my life that I at 17 or whenever I started this? Yeah. Because it was a path quality. I knew that it wasn't so going to. What's your background? What's your background? What is your background? Um, I was a um, Tibetan Buddhist practitioner in Karma Kagyu lineage for 30 years. Okay. 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 I've now been studying with the Theravadan teachers. Yeah. Okay. Wonderful. So you're taking all the tools. No, I think that's really true. I think it's like, um, I mean, yeah, and I, this is why I continually try to not separate religious philosophy from the rest of the world, like something weird. I mean, when you learn anything, if you commit to music and you have a path and you have teachers, you know where you're going. If you commit to anything, you know where you're going. And this it happened to be, they're called Gulupa. You know, I didn't know. I wasn't looking for that. I just fell there. It was clearly karma took me there. But having a path and a way of studying it and analyzing it, for me, is is kind of clear. It's helpful. And then and then, of course, the more I, I mean, I've got Sakya teachings and Kagyu teachers and everybody, I mean, because they all come into the same thing, but you find your own way. In it. And I find that that's for me personally, I find that helpful, not just having a mindfulness technique, just not just that's a good start, I think. But then, of course, I think the other thing is, though, isn't it true? Not everybody wants a Buddhist path. So we can take one percent from it. You can take five percent. But there, there's plenty there that if you want it, you can get it, you know. And that's why I find the books is very powerful. And even and also not just that, but a lot of the prisoners would write and they'd, they'd be a Muslim. And then they'd write and say, well, I've gone back to Islam. Thank you very much. I learned a few things. I've, I've become a Christian again. We were happy about that because I think we tried to encourage people to think, to use their intelligence and think about things and think of the meaning of things. Because when we use our intelligence and use our mind, we taste our own potential, you know, and then you find your own way. You find your way somewhere. No, I think it's very important. I agree. Yeah. 
the path quality. And also, you know, you I noticed that you called your thing the Liberation Prison Project. You know, when the word freedom is used, uh, in terms of, you know, prisoners. Right. The yes. program I developed is called Path of Freedom. And yes. so it's kind of, but the, when you say freedom, the prison's like, okay, that means I'm going to get out and do whatever I want. Right. Really? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the one, of course. And, and the name came from Lama Zopa. You know, he's this classic transforming yeah. problems Lama. And, he, you know, and of course, he, he talks about the inner prison all the time. And recently he asked me to put together as a book, which I did, about a hundred, a couple of hundred of his letters from prisoners over the years who write to him, you know, and commit to him and all the rest. And, I mean, his, his teachings are un. You know, unashamedly classical Tibetan Buddhist Lojong teachings. You know, you learn to like your problems like you like ice cream. And but what's amazing, all these prisoners who have got nothing else and who are they really can really come to the party with all this stuff, you know. So this is, yeah, so the inner prison. So I think the Lama's over got us to call this book Enjoy Life, Liberation from the Inner Prison. Then the outer prison won't become the real prison. So it's pretty intense, intense teachings for people who really want to know Buddha's view, you know. Okay. So anyway. There it is. And you can, there's a website for it. You go there and it raises money for the prison project. Okay. If your life liberated from the inner prison, then the outer prison won't become the real prison. And Nick Rebush at Lama Yeshi Wisdom Archive, he published it. Great. But it's really kind of intense, full-on, classic Buddhist approach of, you know, the whole path, actually. It's all been structured to the whole path, really. Great. So um, I was just talking to somebody yesterday, and she was talking about, she was a, a classic, like, kind of youth at risk. She's not a youth anymore, but she was saying back then she had this idea, the consequences meant absolutely nothing. Because why? Because she'd experienced all the hell in life and every kind of abuse she could imagine, every kind of horror. And so she felt like she had to do what she had to do to win it out over somebody. She was willing to fight him, stab him, kick him, do whatever, rob from him because she had to do and she didn't care about consequences. And if uh, you kill me, bring it on. That was her attitude. I, I hear. And so I was kind of like, what? What in the world changed? you that attitude and she right, said what you think that she got a book of Anne Sexton you know the poet she yeah. got this book and in it it was called life live or die and the the message she got from that book was live or die just don't poison everybody along the way to, to she, what just don't poison everybody along. Oh, okay that's interesting okay very good that's an nice she went whoa I think I got to stop living this way oh that's yes. amazing the so small like, thing can be profound for somebody, can't it? That's incredible. Yeah. Well, you see, the thing I find with about the business of consequences, I find this is what Buddhist teachings for me is so marvelous. I mean, we've got to really think it through because it's not evident to us. But when we hear about karma and we realize that, you know, Buddha's view is that there's this natural law that runs the universe and basically, as the Dalai Lama calls it, it's like self-creation. But we hear it as punishment and reward, just like if you're a Christian or a Muslim, so you just replace it. But actually, when you realize, this is my point about consequences, the first level of karma, forget about past lives. When we start to realize that what I think and do and say produces me. That's the real consequences. I mean, otherwise, we're this schizophrenic person who thinks I can do what I like and as long as I don't get caught. I mean, that's kind of like really quite mentally ill, but that's how we live our lives. And we live like punishment and reward. But we really realize that we produce ourselves. If I'm sitting on my own at home and I'm shouting and yelling at my iPad and the news and the Mr. Trumps of the world, and but nobody hears me, Who? I mean, no, I haven't harmed anybody except myself. If we get that, that's the real essence of karma and that's the real consequences. I mean, my mum, my Catholic mum, used to say, virtue has its own rewards. I mean, that's really what Buddha's saying. When we get that, I think we grow up. Then we realise that we produce ourselves and who wants to become a crazy person? Who wants to become a crazy person? Nobody. I mean, why would you want to be angry all day and anxious and depressed and jealous, you know, when you know that you can change it? And that's why this woman, Sunny, 
with no past really, but just some incredible inference, was able to see that she had the choice to change her mind because she didn't want to go crazy. I, I find that so admirable. It's quite astonishing. And it's hard, it's rare that we get that. Even good little practicing Buddhists, we still have to blame everybody else and feel hopeless, you know. We produce ourselves. That's the real consequences in my in my sense. That's the real meaning, I think, of it. Of yeah, that girl said she she went to a self she went to a bookstore after that and looked for self help. And she the first book she found was Tibetan Book of the Dead that oh she my was God. to. I was really attracted to that book, so I got it and I read it. And then my that, God, she had something. Yeah, <laughs> that's amazing. So wow. you talked about uh, aggression. You talked about two of the three poisons. What about the confusion and delusion of ignorance? Yeah, I know. Well, I think because I mean, I think if we look at it. At the subtlest level, that's the most primordial one. This misconception of a separate, you know, a separate, pointable, findable, set in stone self in the first place. I mean, that's the, you know, attachment's the main, the main voice of that one, and that's the really subtle one, isn't it? I mean, this, this set. I mean, the subtlest level of it. So I know when I talk about the mind a lot, I touch on that, and then, and then really, the, once we can understand attachment and aversion, and know that they're the main voices of this unhappy, separate, bereft self. Then I think once you get going, you can start to begin to taste that one. It's necessarily more subtle, you know, I think. I mean, you can have the grosser consequences of it, which are really just being kind of ignorant and stupid. But I think the really powerful one is getting a sense of how that fantasy self doesn't exist. But, I mean, that, that's pretty tasty. But yeah. I think the more we, but I think you start with attachment and aversion and see this intimate relationship, then we can start to get deeper, I think, inside. It leads to that. That's my feeling. Because there's something about ignorance. It's like you can't. It's not real palpable. Because if you're if you have it, if you're caught in ignorance, you don't. You have no. You don't know. By definition, you don't know. And I mean, I really could say that I think in the in the modern world, you know, we have these marvelous therapists and marvelous systems. But I think there's no view that would say that you can completely reconfigure the way you see yourself and completely change the sense of self to be connected to others and to have no attachment and aversion. That almost seems too radical, you know. So I think we almost in modern psychology and neuroscience we assert a separate concrete self, you know. Yes. Uh, really, but we can easily misunderstand the Buddhist one because then we can hear it about as if it's giving up the ba- chucking out the baby with the bathwater. But when we understand it properly, it's quite liberating. I think it takes time. I think to hear the emotional hunger first. Everybody recognizes that I'm never enough and I never have enough. It's just, it's just automatic. But that's the main voice of this ego grasping, the root one, the ignorance. You know, that's the way I like to talk about it. I mean, one of the constructs, I mean, Buddha, Buddha was like an ama- amazing psychotherapist. Exactly. The Lord of Psychotherapy is right That's there. It. Precisely. And the best the, version. The best. Honey child, you're absolutely right. The best. And that's the, that's lifting psychology to where it should be, you know, not dragging Buddha down. They'll discover yeah. something and then I'll be like, yeah, but I already heard this. Yeah. <laughs> like, and he's your best cognitive therapist, you know, but changing the, the mental constructs. You can completely change yourself. I mean, he's amazing, Buddha. I mean, I think that one of the things that always was really helpful for me was learning about Pratichit Samupada, you know, dependent origination. Uh-huh. I mean, even though it's very complicated and all this kind of stuff to understand the whole thing, but it's just this idea that all these causes and conditions are coming together to create any given moment. It's just, it's kind of, it's not so overwhelming as it is liberating, I think. No, it's true. It really is true. But I think that's where the skill is. I think, you know, when we, I mean, I know when I first heard the teachings in the 70s in Australia and listened to Lama Zopa, it was as if he'd come straight from the Middle Ages. Because, I mean, the irony of Tibet was it was kept in isolation, which was the good thing. But, I mean, he was speaking straight out of the mouth of Tsongkhapa in the 14th century. So, I mean, I sat there for one month not knowing what the hell he was talking about, knowing there was something there. So I persevered. But so yeah. I think this is why it was, so, and this is why someone like Lama Yeshi from the beginning 
even though his English was chaos, chaotic, he just could, he just had this wisdom, which is what these, any practitioner has wisdom and sees the mind. He could see the way we needed to be talked to. He just had this incredible ability to talk in a way that made sense to us. I mean, every time Lama Zopa would be giving the intense Lam Rim teachings all day, every day, and then Lama Yeshi would come along at night and sit one hour talking, and I would sigh with relief. I knew there was something there because of him, you know, because it's psychological. And this is where any of these Lamas, when they speak, all the Lamas that the West love, they speak psychologically, they speak experientially. Not just the theories, and when we need that badly, it gives us courage, you know. Yes, that's what we can unpack. And I knew then, back in the seventies, when I first met the lamas, that it's sort of our job. We're the bridge. Somehow, whatever reason we are, you know, we whatever Americans, Australians, now liking this Tibet or Buddhism in general, and it's our job to not some modern Buddhists kind of throw out the baby with the bathwater and then reinvent your own. You've got to internalize it first. You've got to practice it, you know, and then you can express it in terminology that's digestible. And that, for me, I also find the one that is that, I mean, you can say, oh, we've all got Buddha nature. sounds so theoretical. But if you say we've all got this marvelous potential that we're not set in stone, that's encouraging. And that's really all Buddha is telling us. But to use modern language is so important, you know, because if it's not universal, that's what I found when I first heard the teachings. I was a radical feminist. I've been a political activist for 10 years. And I felt if this was not for me, if this actually was not universal, what the hell am I doing there? But if so, it, we've got to strip away all the packaging, not chuck the essence out, but strip away the packaging and find the essential universal truths in this stuff if it's there. And if it's there, then it's fantastic. Well, what would you say to somebody who was like just getting started in this and they wanted to go in and they had good intentions, like I want to go in and help the prisoners and volunteer? What would you say to them as advice? Well, you know, what I found over the years, even just mainly the programs we had, in certainly in America because America is so vast, um, I, I would go, and when I started, I would go into prisons, but then I'd travel four hours to Sacramento from San Francisco, whatever it was. And then because the Southern Mexicans had a fight that day, there was a lockdown. So you have to drive four hours back. And it was just for two hours, you know. So we found the program to really focus on was writing letters and sending books. And that's still amazing. But still, the number of people who would, we had at some time, maybe a couple of hundred mentors, but it would change a lot because in the beginning, people get all excited and rather patronizing. All oh, these poor people, oh, I'm so, oh, I'd love to help them. Then they get bored after a while. So really, the people who persevere. And, and the other, and the thing is for me that, you know, the other, also what I would say is that really, you know, want to help and not be patronizing. But then, second, I mean, to even think that people in prison are different from you and me is a bizarre concept. They happen to live in a pretty disgusting house, that's all. So I found the teachings that I give in prison are not the fraction different from anything that anybody else gets because we're all the same, we're all human beings. So that's one, we're all human beings and we all need to need, – and so then the other one is if you're going to write, you don't need to be a great scholar, just speak from your heart. Be authentic. Don't think you know more than you do, but just be authentic and be a friend because 99% of the people who write to us, they might not become Buddhists, but they want a friend and a mentor and a person to encourage them, to show them some love, you know. I mean, that's the thing. So just have some humility. We're all the same. And if you practice, you can help others. If you don't practice, then you forget it. You can't help anybody. So if you don't practice, don't even bother, you know. What are your takeaways? What did you learn about yourself from working in? Working well, that's the thing. I mean, for me, the main thing is, the um, the the inspiration I have. I'm not trying to say they're all saints. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people have written to us over the years. I mean, maybe that's exaggerating. Twenty five, thirty, forty thousand, maybe, maybe, over the years, written letters, and ninety percent don't stay. But I didn't. So first of all, even if if even if we help one of them, just think you can change your mind. I'm happy with that. First point. But second, for me, it was learning that. Um, 
to have admiration for people in these disgusting conditions who learn to really work with it. That's what I find so admirable. That's what I found so admirable and 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 worthwhile. So just now, I had an email from uh, Mitchell on death row in Kentucky. He's this white dude, been in there thirty five years. He happened to have guns and he was dealing with drugs. And if you have guns and drugs, honey, people are going to die. You know, and he's on death row, getting close to his death date. He's this working class boy, you know, what man, grandfather now. And he he had, now has finally got his tablet first time, and he's able to listen to podcasts. And he heard me and the nun who's at the moment the director of the set of, of Prison Project, Venerable Turkey. She and I did a podcast with Wisdom Publications, and it was on his little machine. He could not believe it. He said I was in tears because he was he was one of our moving stories. He'd never heard me talk this way. He just thinks of himself as this little dude in his own prison cell. He was so moved that he was such an inspiration for other people in the Prison Project. He was so moved by this, and that's the thing. I mean, the stories. Some of the, I mean, even just talking about Sonny, he's not even a Buddhist. When you talk about people in difficult circumstances, people are moved by that. So it's the inspiration that I find. I'm not trying to patronize them. Yeah. It's the inspiration. When you really have nothing else and no one to turn to, you've got yourself. And Buddha's telling us that, but they, they, they know that. They know that. The food is disgusting. The houses are disgusting. Your, your roommates, too, are probably, you know, psychopaths. Not a, it's not as if psychopaths are only in prison. We know that. But somehow when you can deal with this garbage dump environment and find your own self, how can you not be inspired by that? You know? Really? I hope he gets to listen to I will. This will be put yeah, on the podcast. I hope so. Hi, Mitchell. Get it in. Powerful, you know, the system that puts yes. it in. Has to- the last time I saw him, a couple of years ago, yeah. Um, we were discussing he was he's getting close to his death date because he does one more appeal then he gets two more years that's how it works you know and yeah. he's fine but he uh, he uh, we were discussing how he would be when they when they execute him because at, on the day because it, because he was tried and sentenced in the eighties and even though it's now illegal he has to be ex- he has to be electrocuted I mean it's like medieval days you know so he's got to be tied to this chair and he's got to have so he said he's going to have this guy I forget all exactly in front of him and this guy's going to be like one foot in front of his face six inches he's going to be putting you know uh, ele- electrifying his body putting electric things on his head then putting a wet cloth and he said Rabina what should I do should I do more my own practice or should I try to look at him and have compassion at that time I mean who thinks about when they're going to die you know no. so I, I and we talked about it and I said, well, I think just mind your own business, let him do his job and keep focused on your own practice, keep focused internally. You know, that was the discussion we had. I mean, how often do you talk about how you're going to die? We don't like to think about it. In such a horrific way with okay. something else doing it to you, you know. Like, I know, unbelievable. I know, incredible. But he really, and then this is the thing too, because he's really come to terms with his life. He's regretted totally the craziness, whatever he did. He's now accepting his own reality. He's not angry. He's not resentful. He does his practice up every morning at four o'clock, does his practice every day. He does crafts. He helps the other crazy, crazy guys, you know, and he's just this relaxed, easygoing guy who's accepting his life and dealing with his reality and not looking forward to getting out. That's the thing. I mean, many people in prison, the suffering is because you've got nothing to look forward to. But he knows he's got nothing to look forward to except his own death. So he lives, he makes the most of his life. And so you, how can you not admire that? He's putting into practice what Buddha's been telling all of us, you know. We still live in the fantasy that, you know, the next cake will do it, the next nice book will do it, the next holiday will do it. He's got none of that. Wow, that's, that's, what I'm, that's beautiful. It's a very raw practice, you know, and I'm, I'm not trying to make them saints. I mean, you know, they're just human beings like you and me, but when you're up against it and you have anybody who's really dealing with their life and suffering and is making the most of it, you can only admire. You can only admire. You know. So uh, would you be willing to lead a short meditation here just for, because we're going to play this as a podcast. Sure. 
just to sort of tender? Sure, sure. Um, sure. Why don't can we just do a little five minute chin raising meditation? Keep it really simple. Visualization. Will that do? Great. Okay, I'll just make it really simple. So, okay, everybody, just be, treat meditation as something completely natural. Don't get all kind of fancy about it. Just close your eyes, sit up straight, maybe instead of you know, if you, if you close your eyes and slump into the chair, you're not off to sleep. So we don't want that. So we'll just do five minutes. Just sit up straight, relax, put your head slightly forward, have your hands in your lap, and then just for one minute, for start, just focus the mind for one second, for one minute, one minute, focus the mind. So just simply pay attention to the sensation at your nose. That's it. Just focus your mind there. Do your best. Pay attention to the air going in and out of your nostrils. So just get your mind steady for one minute. And no expectations. Just watch the breath in and out for one minute. If your mind wanders, just bring it back to the breath. Just pay attention. Okay. So now we just do our best and use our creative imagination, really. So imagine in front of us the embodiment of compassion. So we'll call that a Buddha, you know, and if you're familiar with the Tibetan Buddhist imagery, but if not, don't you worry about it. Just imagine this sort of subtle light body, radiant white light, very blissful, very beautiful, this, this person. It happens to be male, but you can't tell sometimes. They look pretty similar. And it's just the embodiment of compassion qualities, all the qualities of a Buddha, infinite wisdom, infinite power, infinite, but compassion, the aspect of compassion, loving kindness. And think of it as like a mirror image of your own, showing you your own potential. So, I mean, you know, if you look at the pictures and the statues, you'll see he's sitting cross-legged. Anyway, but keep it simple. His beautiful face, very radiant. And think of it as just an embodiment of compassion. That's it. So now imagine he sends from his uh, his brow radiant beams of white light that enter your brow and fill you completely and completely purify and remove all the pain and heaviness of this body of ours. But also imagine purifying all the imprints in our mind left over from the harm we've done to the sentient beings with our bodies, you know, the ants we've killed, I mean, the people we've harmed, the boyfriend we cheated on, even just in this life, you know. Because everything we think and do and say, Buddha says, leaves an imprint in the mind, kind of programs us. So think, you know, I'm sick of this suffering. I don't want this. So imagine full of this blissful white light and all these imprints, all this nonsense, the harm we've done with our bodies and all the sickness of the body, completely annihilated, full of this radiant white light. Just imagine.
And then imagine now that um, whoever sees you, hears you, smells you, touches you, tastes you, can only be benefited by your presence. Can you imagine this? Whoever sees you has contact, the ants, the dogs, the birds, the humans. They can only be benefited by your body. How incredible. Imagine that. It's marvelous potential, this white light. No longer harm. Not possible. And now Lama Chenrezig, Buddha, the Buddha of compassion, you know, he sends radiant beams of red light from his throat that penetrate your throat and fill you completely. And this time, annihilate all the nonsense of our speech, you know. First, we often don't know what to say. We say the wrong things. We get confused. We don't think. And then also the harm we've done with our speech. This is us humans especially, isn't it? Words that aren't true, harsh speech, bad-mouthing people behind their backs, just rabbiting on about nothing. All this nonsense that kind of drags us down, not to mention harming others. So imagine all this completely annihilated, full of this radiant white light. It's red light, radiant red light filling us. All the nonsense purified. Then think, whoever hears me, whatever sound I say, can only benefit they say this is the kind of the main gift of the Buddha, you know, and the holy beings is their speech. We need speech in our daily life, don't we, to be of benefit to others, to get the things we need, to be useful. So imagine full of this blissful red light, this powerful speech, this ability to be of benefit to others, even just saying good morning, and, you know, subdue the emotional pain of other human beings, other sentient beings, full of this power, this red light. And now the Buddha of compassion sends from his heart and the center of his chest radiant beams of blue light, blue like the sky, that penetrate us and fill us. And this time fixes the mind, you know, annihilates all the pain and hopelessness and depression and anxiety and fears and jealousy and low self-esteem and attachment and anger and the primordial misconception of this separate sense of the bereft, lonely I. All of this nonsense the Buddha says we've made it up. This source of what we do with our body and speech to harm others and therefore harm ourselves. All of these neuroses eradicated. Imagine for this radiant blue light. As Buddha has found, these are not at the core of our being. They can be removed. They're not our true nature. So if all that nonsense is gone, what's left? Well, that's, this is who we really are. Wisdom that sees things as they are. The sense of connectedness with others. Empathy, compassion, self-confidence, courage. And the bonus, joy. You know, misery comes from all those ridiculous states of mind. Joy and courage and contentment come from these, these positive ones. These are who we really are. So full of these mar this marvelous potential, our true nature. This blissful blue light.
And now imagine that uh, this Buddha just comes to the crown of your head. Imagine, just comes to the crown of your head facing the same way as you. Just imagine. Buddha's body, speech, and my mind. This is my true nature. And for like one minute, just kind of expand to fill the universe. Clear, vast, blissful. Just imagine my true nature. No thoughts for one minute. And now just to finish, we now imagine, imagine as if we are the Buddha. We now say, just seeing the mantra a few times, the, the, the Sanskrit syllables of the Buddha of compassion. They're like the sound version of this energy. And just we sing it a few times and imagining all sentient beings, and we imagine that we have the courage to never give up to want to help every single one of them. And imagine the sound going out, blessing them all. Omani Pemehu Omani Pemehu Omani Pemehu Omani Pemehu Omani Pemehu we just decide we're going to never give up working on ourselves, developing ourselves second by second. We're a work in progress, never give up. One, for our own sake, never forget that, but two, so that we can help others. That's it. Thank you, darling. Thank you so much for all the work you do and continue. Oh, you too. You're doing amazing. And I love it. It's a delight to meet you. And yes, I'm me really too. Loved it. And this is so successful. I hope it's so successful. You're doing great. I'm Thank so admire. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening. To learn more about PMI and our programs, please visit prisonmindfulness.org. You can also keep up with us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn.